we need a service that does both crazy and full of drugs or alcohol, and that's called the emergency department. Toxicology is making the diagnosis and dissuading treatment. This is us moving in the wrong direction. That's a 5 by 7 poster from Kinko's in the courtroom, that one. Always be sued for malfeasance and not nonfeasance. This just smacks of a lack of judgment. It's hard to distinguish who the patients are and who the psychosocial workers are. Emergency docs and cops have a lot in common because we deal with a lot of the very same people. Hello and welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, and Jim Roberts. Hi, Rick. Hi, Rick. This is the May issue of Risk Management Monthly. Now, How though, time goes by. Amazing. As you may have Seems recalled. Seems like we just did this. Yes. Last month's issue was taped in Key West where we were doing one of the EMA courses. And Jim is one of the faculty down here. We thought we would take this opportunity for him to participate. And as you will probably intuit, Dr. Mel Herbert is not here. Mel is still with us. He is not on probation or anything like that. He's still with us, but I just could not pass up the opportunity to do a tape with Jim Roberts and Greg here together. Now, those of you who didn't listen or haven't listened to your previous tape, let me remind you who Jim Roberts is. If you've been living under a rock, you may not know who Jim Roberts is, but everybody in emergency medicine knows Jim. First of all, he does the column in Emergency Medicine News. He's senior editor for Emergency Medicine News or the advisory board or whatever that thing's called there, but it is Emergency Medicine News. dude. And you write this nice thing each month that has got quite a following. There's no question about it. Never miss it. Never miss it. Jim is also the chairman of the Mercy Catholic Medical Center emergency department there. He's also on the faculty at what university are you, Jim? Drexel University. Drexel University, professor of emergency medicine. But today we want to emphasize what we didn't say last month in that Jim is also a toxicologist. He's board certified in tox. He's the director of toxicology for the Mercy Catholic Medical Center, but he's also the senior consultant for the Delaware Valley Regional Poison Control Center. And I thought we would pick his brain on toxicology-related cases and issues because he, in particular, is getting lawsuits related to toxicology. Rick, this is a real treat because each one of us tends to get cases sent in those areas in which we're expert. Neil Little and I tend to get those cases which have to do with neurological emergencies, stroke, that sort of thing. And Jim really has a unique experience because toxicology is not the strong suit of most emergency medicine people. I'll tell you the truth. Every 10 years before I sit down to take my boards again, I've got to read the section on tox and hope I get through that part of the Well, test. you might want to consider, Greg, going to the National Emergency Medicine Board Review. I've heard that's a fabulous, fabulous review course for the boards. I've done that once. <laughs> And I'm going to have to go again, it looks like. And for anybody out there who's looking for a career, we're looking for fellows at Drexel in toxicology. Well, you know, isn't toxicology kind of like dying? I mean, we don't see people dying of these serious overdoses anymore. You went into it, but it's a dying specialty, Jim. It is a dying specialty. Right? I think the way to support it is not having 800 numbers. Have a 900 number. And if you call up from a small hospital, you get properly billed for using that expertise. Why not? Well, yeah. actually, there was a move afoot where the drug companies were going to fund some kind of thing like that. Drug companies, chemical companies, the people who make the Clorox and all of this other stuff that people kind of drink, that never came to pass. Well, they sponsor a lot of poison centers around the country. 
McNeil sponsors poison centers and the people with McDrano, they get contracts. The poison centers answer a lot of their, eight, their 900 calls or 800 calls for information about poisons from industry. Gotcha, gotcha. What we're here today, though, is to talk about those interactions between poisoning and potential poisonings and the law. It's not just what do you do with someone who's sick and someone who's may have an ingestion, but what are the potential legal consequences? And Jim's experience is unique because he's handled the lawsuits where emergency physicians have been sucked in because of handling or mishandling or potential mishandling of an overdose. My sense of this is that there are the cases where there is a clear-cut history of an ingestion and an overdose. And those tend to be, frankly, a lot easier than the ones that come in, which are the you know, cult overdoses. They are the acetaminophens or the carbon monoxides, where you think that there's some other medical entity going on, but it has not entered your head that this may be a toxicologic problem. Well, I'd like to ask Jim, and serious question, our problem is not the person who we know they've taken an overdose and somebody comes in with pill bottles and that sort of thing. It's that patient who comes in, is an alcoholic, We smell the alcohol, we know they've got alcohol on board, and we just never think that there may be another drug going on at this moment in time. That's true. The easiest ones are the ones that you know what they've taken, and those are relatively straightforward, hard to screw those up. Mortality rate's very low, as long as you don't do anything kind of silly or super aggressive. The other ones are that you send somebody home that, for example, is exposed to a deadly toxin, such as carbon monoxide, who you've cured because they're out of the environment for a while, and you send them back to them and their family to a serious problem. You've raised an excellent point, and that is that most of toxicology is watching and waiting and hoping and protecting and not doing anything stupid. I tell our fellows, toxicology is making the diagnosis and dissuading treatment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there certainly is a section of treatment which even the rank-and-file emergency physician is kind of aware of, which is this back-off from gastric decontamination. In fact, even one of the first LLSA articles that was recommended was one of these summaries of the literature. The literature on this topic is terrible, however. They're not doing randomized double-blind studies. They're not doing people who generally have serious overdoses. The mortality, as Jim pointed out, is minimal to begin with, so it's really difficult to show the pros and cons, but we have gradually seen that there's a fair number of risks associated with gastric decontamination, which are disproportionately not appreciated. Well, this is the perfect area for primum non nocere, do no harm. First, do no harm, because most people are going to get better no matter what you do. And the treatment itself, putting down an NG tube, putting down charcoal, doing various studies, intubation of the patient, all of those carry with them a risk. And I'm sure that, Jim, you must have cases where the overly aggressive therapy has been worse than the disease. That's true. When I was an intern, we'd put down these large hoses and every little kid that swallowed mm-hmm. a couple of chorocedin tablets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, every once in a while, you get a perforated esophagus. The worst one, of course, is the charcoal that gets aspirated. And if you haven't seen anybody die from aspiration right in front of you, you just haven't worked enough shifts because that can occur. It's unusual. Do you have a specific case on that? Yeah, we're involved in a case of bipolar patients who are always difficult to deal with. There are high incidence of suicide attempts. Sometimes not nice people, really difficult to sort of communicate with. They don't like you to begin with, and you just can't reason with them. This lady came in who said she took an overdose, and it seemed to be that she took colase, which sounds kind of funny, but the story is, well, I can't believe the history. You always hear that. I can't believe the history, which is true. You can't believe the history most of the time. So maybe she's got some other things because these patients have drugs available to them. So the doctor went in the room to try to give her charcoal, and she knocked the charcoal out of her hand and all over him, and that really got him upset. So he called and tied her down with a security guard. 
kids, put an NG tube down her nose when she was on her back, and it just so happened that it went into her lungs, and he squirted in about 260 cc syringes full of charcoal, arrested right there on the scene, and died from a case that probably was just a colase overdose. There, the treatment is worse than the disease. Well, it actually cured the bipolar disease, though. So, I mean, let's take the broader view of this. No, a real problem, I'm sure, is that most of the overdose patients overlap with the psych patients, overlap with those people that even on a good day, you wouldn't want to take out to dinner or have over for a social event. And I think what's toughest for the emergency doc is to remember, you know what? Nobody asked us or told us that we have to like them, but you have to treat them. And they have rights like everybody else. And, and, and their family, actually, you know, a lot of families are very concerned about them. They're as frustrated as we are with them trying to take care of them. Correction, one thing, Rick, there have been a number of prospective studies where they would randomize patients who got lavage and not lavage. And that ended up as the American College of Medical Toxicology's position on gastric lavage that is not routine treatment and doesn't alter outcome. However, the first thing the family always ever asks when their loved one overdoses, did you pump their stomach? Right. So there's a great preemptive strike. Weren't a lot of those cases related to volunteers taking acetaminophen? No, actually they were one that I did at Cincinnati, about 500 patients, where we took all comers overdoses, including patients with bad overdoses like TCAs. And we actually found a higher incidence of ARDS and aspiration in patients who we intubated and lavaged than those who we just let alone or had them drink charcoal. Right, you talked about the case where the person died. I'm sure for everyone that died, there's 10,000 who had some element of aspiration because putting an NG tube down, people are gagging, retching, those kinds of things right then and there. And there may have been some aspiration of charcoal, but it didn't kill them kind of thing, but it maybe caused some morbidity. The executive summary on charcoal is if they'll drink it, fine, and you ought to be darn sure, first of all, they're not going to go unconscious or seize or are somewhat impaired when you're giving it to them. If you took a bottle full of Elleville in the parking lot before you came in, that person might be a candidate for gastric lavage and charcoal, but not just charcoal then walking out of the room because those things happen quickly and those patients die very quickly. And I guess Ipecac is kind of like definitely history. It's relegated to the tar pits of antiquity. Well, it's interesting that sitting around the table here, about 90 years experience in emergency medicine, we all lived through the Ipecac era. In fact, I remember that we were sending home pediatricians were giving parents Ipecac bottle to take home to use if their kid took an overdose before they got to the hospital. So now what they have is a kid who's probably got nothing that dangerous who's now vomiting all over the back of the car. I also remember parents coming in who remember the hose era and would say to me, well, you're going to pump this one out. They did it with my other kid who 10 years ago, they pumped him out. I'm sure you're going to do that too. And this is the time when you have to be terribly diplomatic and say, you're right. In the old days, we used to do that. Here's the better way of doing that now. Right. That's a preemptive strike, saying we used to pump the we stomach for this. That way they know that you're a smart doc, you thought about it, you're aware of those things. But we don't do that anymore because it can cause more harm than good. This concept of the preemptive strike goes throughout emergency medicine, and it is the idea of allowing the patients to understand why you're not going to do something or why you're doing something in anticipation of a criticism by others. Right. Well, as soon as they say, aren't you going to pump the stomach, we've lost the battle because why didn't the doctor say that as soon as he walked into the room? Neil, your colleague, I remember he would tell the story about the use of the figure of eight dressings in clavicle fractures. And basically he would tell the patients, well, we don't put those figure of eights on anymore because the literature says they don't affect the outcome of this fracture in any case. And there's issues of compromising the circulation and nerve compromise, et cetera, et cetera. So the real element of the preemptive strike here was, and if 
with when you go to your doctor. He says, why don't they put on a figure eight? Everybody knows you're supposed to put on a figure eight. You are going to a doctor who hasn't read a journal in about 30 years, and you better get yourself a new doctor. <laughs> yeah. Now, that is the ultimate. <laughs> or a free subscription to Emma. <laughs> yeah, a free subscription to That's Emma. That's the ultimate. Exactly right. So we're talking here about gastric decontamination. Basically, the idea is only if it's immediate will likely be as successful uh, in any way. Immediate, a severe overdose, one you don't have an kind of thing. One you don't have an overdose. That's always, of course, a judgment call because the history is often unusual. And there are a few cases where you might be able to understand that. The one that the guy comes out of the psychiatrist's office with a whole bottle of Elavil. That's a thirty-day supply of Elavil is going to kill anybody, no matter what you do or when you do it. That one you might consider intubation and lavage in that particular patient. By the way, we used to think that. Lavage would dissuade them. The nurses, you say, well, he won't do it again after we do this. I interviewed patients after we did lavage the next day. Half of them didn't remember it. The other half said, boy, I really needed that, doc. Thanks for it. And the other one said, well, gee, I guess that was uncomfortable, but it was okay. So it doesn't keep them from overdosing again, which is what you might intuit. And you mentioned intubation and lavage. I mean, those are basically the compromised cases. Most people who are awake and they just took it, you can give it to them by mouth, and that would be certainly the safer way to have them drink. Well, the other thing is we rarely get people into the department who five minutes earlier took everything at once, and so that there would be some reasonable chance of getting it back if you pump the stomach. I mean, if over the last 12 hours they've been taking Tylenol tablets, the chance that you're going to change even the enterohepatic circulation in that are very small. So we nailed that. So basically we can do more harm than good in the vast majority of cases if you try to empty their stomach. Never say never, but it's an unusual and not standard of care. Okay, now another thing that comes up is this issue about doing toxicology panels. And there's opportunities here to screw things up because of seeing a panel that comes back negative, which in fact doesn't mean the person hasn't taken things that you can't measure. I guess the first thing I would point out is when there's a choice of believing the test or believing the patient in front of you, I'd believe the patient in front of me. And sometimes I think the panels don't hit everything, but I'm not an expert in panels. Jim is. Well, they're amazingly honest, some of these patients. They run the gamut. Some of them won't say a word to you, and the others will detail exactly what they did and when they did it and why they did it and then give you the whole life story. And there's all points in between. I think the biggest problem with drug screening is that doctors, they don't do the Dirty Harry, man's got to know his limitations analysis. Most doctors have no idea what the drug screen does, how they do it, and what it can and can't tell you. There are false positives, there are false negatives, and there are things that just don't show up. Very common, Percocet. Oxycodone is not seen on almost any immunoassay urine screen in this country because it's not a narcotic. It's a man-made substance. So therefore, you have to do a special test for oxycodone. So a negative drug screen for someone overdosed on Percocet doesn't mean they didn't do it. Clonazepam or clonopin is a common benzodiazepine. Won't show up on a drug screen even though they're in coma from it. Fentanyl or methadone, two other narcotics. Methadone is a huge problem in our area. A methadone overdose doesn't come up as positive on a drug screen for narcotics. But they're reversed with Narcan. So if the patient is comatose, responds to Narcan, the assumption has to be, no matter what the test is, that they've got something which is at least working at the narcotic endpoint in the nervous system. Let's go from the other end. Jim, you mentioned that 
most patients are pretty straight about what they've taken, and I think that's my experience as well. I also have looked at the literature on this, and this common myth that they won't tell you or there's going to be an occult, very toxic drug that they've taken is generally urban legend. The vast majority of people will be correct. There are some drugs which have no clinical manifestation. It gets into this idea of, is it considered routine to do toxicology panels in people who have acknowledged taking an overdose because they might have taken something else that they're in the minority of these cases? Difficult question, gray area. I would view the tox screen in an overdose the same as I would in a CBC in pneumonia. Why do you do a CBC in someone who has pneumonia? I don't know. If it's 12,000 or 16,000 or 9,000, you're not going to change your treatment, but everybody does it. Yeah, and don't say the word baseline because nobody knows what that term actually means. Well, there's this issue here about the one occult toxin that will take you out being acetaminophen. And that would be the reason that unless you are absolutely positive this person just took a bottle of Coley's and that's it, then there is this kind of concern that if you don't measure it and it's there, the person will be harmed. I fought this for years with Psych, who said, nobody gets in unless you've got the blood alcohol and the tox screen done. Now, I stopped fighting the war after a while and just immediately got them. And you know what? Occasionally, every now and then, we would pick up something which we did not suspect on that tox screen. You rarely do anything different. You basically treat on the clinical status. You'll find stuff you don't understand or not expect there. The CMF is a whole different category, but you're right. Every psychiatry department in the country wants a drug screen, but there's a good reason, at least in Philadelphia, to do that because if you have psychiatric disease and you don't have insurance, you're screwed. If you do a drug overdose and you have insurance, you're screwed. But if you have a psychiatric disease and a substance abuse problem called a dual diagnosis, our city pays us zillions of dollars to take care of you. Yeah, this is a wonderful thing. We call up internal medicine and say, you know, we've got this guy down here, probably taking some drugs. He says, he's crazy, isn't he? He says, so call psych. So we call psych start telling the story and they say, sounds like a medicine case to me. So we need a service that does both crazy and full of drugs or alcohol, and that's called the emergency department. Yes, we are going to devote more time to the concept and issues of psychiatric clearance, but not on this one, because we want to take advantage of Jim's expertise. But you can't stop the fact that these things run together. One group of patients is the other group of patients, except in a very Except we're fighting with the psychiatrist about these knee-jerk tox panels. I wouldn't fight about a tox screen. ER docs might be able to live with it, but there's no internist in the country who's going to admit somebody without a tox screen. There's very few psychiatric departments who's going to do it. So let's go ahead and do it. We spend so much money on other stuff. It's not the money, it's the time. Well, get it back and all that other stuff. I say I've sent the drug screen and you can check it in an hour. Exactly right. Because you don't delay getting the bed or getting the psych social. There's always a psych social worker who has to come down and see the patient. Who are those people? Two years ago, they were patients. Yeah, exactly. They they have a bone through their nose or something (laughs) like this. And it's hard to distinguish who the patients are and who the psych social workers are. In all fairness, we have some very You're going to offend the bone nose people now when you (laughs) talk like that. Yeah, that's right. Acetaminophen is a different story if you want to check on that. That, again, you'll rarely find in acetaminophen level. The literature is pretty clear when you test 20 zillion people. You'll find one or two that had a level that may be significant. But people aren't dropping off like flies because we're missing acetaminophen overdose and people who said they took acetaminophen or they didn't say they took anything but that's none of those things it costs about 10 cents to do the test it can kill you and there is an antidote for it so i bite and the there are almost on no one. symptoms oh they never until they start to head down the tube they don't get symptoms for a while so this late's different story you take a bottle of aspirin you're sick in about 20 minutes you take a bottle of tylenol it may take you 20 hours to get sick so that's another one that i wouldn't bother fighting i would just go ahead and get that get that in the pregnancy test all these drug overdoses along with the drug screen it's not your money. 
go ahead and do it, and you might find some good information. There's a policy at a lot of hospitals where the nurses automatically call a poison center before you even know that a poison patient is there and filling in the chart with all of these things that they call the poison center as a matter of policy. And it seems to me that that's generally a waste of time. But oh, don't say that to the poison center people. They're zealots about their field. I like them to do that. That way they don't call me. <laughs> but they, they're right. They're, I get calls from the ICU at 3 o'clock in the morning, ICU nurses calling me because they referred me from the poison center about complicated cases. The doctor never calls me. Do they know that you are the senior consultant? They're going right to the top? They're going right to the oldest. That's right. It only costs a few more dollars to go first class. Right? Well, my view is that Calling the poison center is like doing any other test or consultation. You call them when you need to rather than all the time. I can tell you I've been involved in legal cases where the criticism was they didn't call the poison center or they didn't call a toxicologist. Now, there are like 250 toxicologists in the country, so I don't think you're going to call one if you live in a certain area of the country. You don't even know who they are, but that's a big criticism that couldn't you have called the poison center and there are regional poison centers everywhere i've seen that criticism a number of times but what if you know if it's a straightforward acetaminophen level though you measure the level it's that never goes to court it's the ones that have problems that they said couldn't you have gotten help on this and greg admitted that a lot of docs aren't really up on a lot of this sort of stuff you know we talked today in one of our courses or programs about the current treatment of cyanide the truth is, most of us don't see much cyanide poisoning. We don't know exactly what's being done today. I don't mind speaking with them. I don't have to take all of their knowledge or all of their suggestions. But if I've spoken to Fred Jones at the Poison Center, I note that on my chart because it shows that I cared enough to seek what current information the really call is. call the very best. They call the best. My issue is doing it as a matter of policy. That's all. I didn't want it to go any further because I believe that if you don't know or you need some help, etc., certainly I would call this resource. Right. I couldn't agree with you more. It should not be policy, but you should not be afraid of getting help when you need it. That's the sign of a smart doc who knows when he doesn't know. Rick, you don't call the orthopod on every broken bone. You're selective. That's the same way it ought to be in overdoses. There are going to be those where you need that help and those where it's very clear what the treatment is going to be. And I think that good judgment here is a part of handling these cases. Okay, so now we talked about the gastric decontamination. We talked about the tox panels and calling the poison center. But that's all in the environment of either I believe or I highly suspect that this person's done some kind of toxicological overdose. There's a group of people, however, who unless you're really attuned to it, will come in with what appear to be medical problems, and in fact, they are purely toxicologic problems. Jim, you want to get into that a little bit? Well, there are a few of those that everyone needs to be aware of, and you'd probably get it on a board exam, but in the heat of battle of an ER, you might not know in the flu season that someone who has nausea, vomiting, and headache just happens to be that one in 100,000 that has carbon monoxide poisoning, for example. And that's a bad one because it'll get better with just being out of the house and with some compazine and a little bit of fluids and some time, and you send those patients home, and many of them die, and this can also be the whole family. So carbon monoxide, and it's not just the winner, usually the winner, but not always, but that's one that you really ought to have high suspicion on. So you ought to consider that in your cases, particularly when you think it's gastroenteritis, migraine, influenza, those sorts of things, that carbon monoxide is a killer, and you can test readily for it. Carbon monoxide at least in my experience, the number of patients that I've seen. And it's not a lot, but the headache has been very severe. And whenever they come in in groups, in lumps of people, 
you don't usually get people who come in. There are three of us from the same household well, who have going headaches. Around. Come on, Doc. Well, they may, but you know what? Everybody's got Severe it. headache in that setting, my suspicion, my antenna goes up. When I walk in to see a headache patient, I usually think about three or four things. Have they bled? Do they have hypertension? Do they have carbon monoxide poisoning? Do they have an infection? And so my exam is actually, and my history and my physical are geared to deciding, do you fall into one of those three or four groups and everybody else, the 99%, are a pain management problem. Those are a medical management problem, and it's really a different kind of picture. Well, this is one of the key areas where you would inquire about anybody else in the family being sick. Yes. If you're smart enough to think about that. If you're smart enough to think about it, or the situation is such. And by the way, the other thing which is always unusual is if they tell you, you know, that was the worst headache at home, and you know, since driving over here, it's getting a lot better. Well, Most a lot of, headache patients don't say that. that. If they tell you that. Yeah. If they tell you that, then it's, it's a giveaway. But the litigation for missed carbon monoxide poisoning is actually fairly common. And that's a bad disease. That's another one of those diseases that doesn't really kill everybody, but it can make you brain damaged. So somebody's got to pay to take care of you for the rest of your life. Right. There's this issue of long-term psychiatric symptoms after carbon monoxide. It's all about this hyperbaric, this, that, and the other thing. By the way, the data that hyperbaric works on these people is very poor. In fact, well, the data may be poor, but the fact of the matter is, is that, well, Jim, where do you stand on putting these people in the chamber if you have access? Well, I don't think there's any litigation that you did or did not give hyperbarics because there is no data, as Greg said, one way or the other. One study says it's good. The next study says it's bad. And it's very hard to study it in the rats. So I don't think you're going to get sued for not giving somebody hyperbarics. What you do get sued for is not giving somebody oxygen right away or missing the diagnosis completely. Personally, if you have a hyperbaric chamber and there are some criteria that you use, including being pregnant being one, levels mean very little. If you're really sick with carbon dioxide poisoning, you have a chamber around, slap a 100% non-rebreather on them and send them to the chamber. They want to make money too, and I think that it makes sense. But that delayed or persistent neurological cognitive problems, I think is probably real. Patients who have exposure to carbon dioxide, and it's not always that they're in coma, but they're just not right for a long, long time. Yeah, I've we seen just a number of patients proven. like that. We just haven't proven that putting him in a chamber actually changes that outcome. All right, so we've got no litigation that we're aware of that says you didn't put him in a chamber in these kind of gray zone cases. We're not talking about the comatose person. So we didn't put him in a chamber, and no litigation exists about it. But isn't this similar to no harm, no foul? If we put him in that chamber, we may get some benefit. We don't know that. We don't put him in a chamber and say, well, you know, what would have happened, doctor, if I had been put in a chamber? Would I have been feeling any better? Those kinds of things. Are we going to hurt anybody by putting well, in a chamber? Well, uh, probably not, but that's the Dalbert rules, you know. It's junk science that it makes any science. difference. I don't think you'll find credible people in the country that will say that there's definite evidence to show that. It sounds nice and it's fancy, and I think it's a good thing to consider if you have it there. And the families always like to hear that their loved one's going to the chamber, and that gets them out of our hospital <laughs> well, for the first thing. But Depends uh, which chamber they're going to. Right. There's a whole lot of people don't <laughs> The gas has to be oxygen in Oxygen, this case. exactly, right. That's right. Yeah. No, I don't think there's money. They all bust their eardrums, I can tell you that. Yes. And if you miss a pneumothorax, you can get worse. But no, there's very little downside, but... It- by the time you get them to the chamber, it's three, four hours if you're lucky from the exposure. And by that time, their CO is carboxyhemoglobin's gone. It's not the carboxyhemoglobin that gives them a problem. It's what it does to the cells because the levels are all over the place. By the way, I think there are actually a decreasing number 
of chambers around the country, aren't there? I thought that went up and peaked, and now it's well, sort Michael of Jackson up. has one if you need one to spare. You know, <laughs> well, they use them for wound care. They finally got Medicare to pay for wound care for hyperbarics now, so there may be some around. But it's not easy to get people in a chamber. I wouldn't put someone in a helicopter or a four-hour ambulance ride unless under unusual circumstances. If they were brain dead, they're probably going to stay brain dead no matter what you do for them. I would point out, this is still risk management monthly. I don't know of a case against an emergency doc in the United States for not giving someone hyperbaric chamber therapy. And then Jim doesn't either, so it's kind of like a moot point. At this point, right. You want to continue down? Have we done enough of the CO? One of the trip-offs of two, the kids who are riding in the back of a camper... A pickup truck, the pickup truck has a camper over top of it. they got some leaking of the exhaust into the camper shell kind of things. So that's one of the typical histories of is the kids riding in the back of the pickup truck. Well, I had a father bring in two kids, and he said, I can't understand what the matter is with these kids. They, they look bad. They say and they were in the back of the it's camper. all genetics. That's wrong with those kids. Yes, that's well it could have been. But uh, he had been using a hibachi to cook dinner. And he thought it would also help keep the kids warm in the back of the camper. And so the hibachi was running during that 30-mile stretch. And he just couldn't understand what was happening here. The litigation is against doctors isn't in this case. But a number of years ago, there were a string of deaths in Lake Powell. And some of those places where they have houseboats mm-hmm. that had the exhaust from the air conditioner or the generator going out underneath a platform, the swim platform. And there were a slew of deaths of kids that would be swimming out there. They'd go underneath the platform. All they need is one or two breaths, and the kid's done for. He goes underwater and never comes up, and that was all carbon monoxide poisoning. So don't let your kids play off the back of the houseboat when you got the generator running. And keep the hibachi outside in the backyard, not in the camper. Okay, I think we've probably beaten carbon monoxide. Don't say to death now. Right, no, I won't don't do that. that. Let's talk about cocaine. In children, not in adults. We don't want to talk about adult cocaine. We want to talk about kids who have stumbled onto something that they're either legal or illegal that can make them clinically compromised with a relatively small amount of drugs. I have to turn this over to Jim because I have never had a case where an emergency doctor was sued for not picking up accidental cocaine in a child. I haven't seen the case. It may be out there, but Jim may have that experience. Yeah, I think it's more of a diagnostic as opposed to litigation issue, but there's a sort of almost a subspecialty of the one to four-year-old who comes in with strange symptoms that they happen to have taken one of grandma's pills that fell off the couch when she was visiting or they got into the parent's stash of cocaine or even most commonly it's alcohol the night after a party where the parents are sleeping in and the kid's down there and he drinks the last of the gin and tonic and so on. And kids can get significantly hypoglycemic from alcohol. So I get this call a lot from the children's hospital and that is we have a two-year-old who's acting strange. He seems maybe he's hallucinating or maybe he's staggering around and if it happens to be as i said clonopin the benzo and he could be pretty well down on that and they'll say this drug screen's negative what's going on here but cocaine is an interesting one not sure there's any suits for it, but it's, it goes along the case of you ought to know what's going on. And the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia had a series a while back where they took everyone who they thought had a febrile seizure. These were the kids that were one to two years of age that came in with a seizure, and they couldn't find anything wrong, and they had no more seizures. And they did a drug screen on them, and they found about a 3 or 4% incidence of positive benzylecanine, or the metabolite of cocaine. And this was thought to be environmentally mentally obtained from the house. Not so nice people in, in some of the poor neighborhoods of Philadelphia, and these kids would eat some crack, which is actually very bioavailable, or they just eat some of the powder, 
maybe their cholinesterase levels aren't up to snuff and they're going to have a seizure from it. Now that brings up the litigation, would you then release them into the family because that's actually child abuse? By proxy, I guess, is the way to do it. Endangerment. Well, you're obligated, in the state of Michigan anyway, if you had a child who was overdosed like that, that is child endangerment. And for me not to report that to protective services and the police could be punishable up to 90 days to me for not carrying out my duty as agent of the state. What about the two-year-old who takes the mother's sedative or Prozac or Seroquel or something and then comes in with little minor medical problems? Is that the same sort of issue? You think that's a child endangerment issue that you have to report? It is a child endangerment issue, but what our form says is child abuse or, you can check the other box, potential child neglect. And that doesn't mean that they have to take the child out of the home that night. But what it means is if you drop down a level, that Child Protective Services should visit the family, talk about the potential dangers, how you're supposed to store medications, that sort of thing. I think the response of the state, and when we speak to these people on the phone, they may have something quite different that they want to do with regard to the family as opposed to taking the child out of the home that night. They have a range of things they can do, but reporting is still the responsibility of the emergency doc. I had a case the other night where I had a child two years of age who was set in a tub of water and the little sister turned the hot water back on and now scalded the child. The child actually had very little in the way of burns and looked very good. But, you know, I am still obligated with a burned child like that to report either abuse or neglect. What's suspected, basically? Suspected. You never say that they abuse or neglect. What you say is, and I always tell the parents, look, it's not up to me. I'm obligated by the law to do the following. You will get a call from or a visit from and just understand, I have to do this. I think that's a fair way of approaching it. The other thing regarding kids is their susceptibility to certain drugs, just like iron, a prenatal iron could take out a couple of those, could take out a kid. There are still people who take a digoxin. A couple of those will take out a kid kind of thing. They still sell digoxin? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. I'm not sure why. I was always amazed at the amount, how little alcohol it takes in small children. And you're right, they run around the morning after the party, emptying the beer (laughs) bottles or the glasses which are there, and a couple of stiff drinks, which would do almost nothing to you and I as we proved today at lunch, could level a child because they become hypoglycemic almost immediately. Their glycogen store in their liver is very small compared to that of an adult. Jim, are there any other issues that you can think of that in the neighborhood of kids and potential toxicological slash medical legal issues? No, other than poison proofing your home, one slip of Drano these days will wreck a kid's esophagus for his life, so you got to be real careful about those sort of things. I think in generally kids tolerate overdoses in doses per kilogram better than adults do. You talked about mm-hmm. digoxin. Kids can take a fair amount of digoxin, get levels in 12, 15 nanograms, and basically have no symptoms. Now, digoxins can't do a level for four to six hours because it needs to distribute. So if you took one milligram of dig now, your level in two hours might be eight or ten. You see that 12 hours later, it's down to nearly undetectable. So you have to know something about the kinetics. But kids in general do fairly well. 
and I don't think that they drink stuff. It's not really litigation issues other than the right. fact that the parents feel, most of them feel really bad about it when their kid drinks kerosene or aspirates or something like that. Aspiration's bad. You see a lot of guilt when they got into the prenatal vitamins and those kinds mm-hmm. of things because mom was pregnant. She had the kid. There are some vitamins left around. Kid gets into them. We're talking about a three-year-old. <laughs> and the next thing you know, you've got a, an iron overdose, which is still nasty business. One of the leading States. causes of death from drug overdose in children is still iron. You know, it's almost like there's a law that if if you've got a prescription drug, you can't throw it out when the disease is done. And you and I are the same way. Why that, would I spend all that money and throw a drug exactly out? Exactly right. Use it, it again. It I goes give it to my wife to, and say she gets it. <laughs> it goes back into the closet in case we want to treat the dog, if we want to treat anybody else. We've got something sitting there. And I'm sure a lot of this stuff is years out of date. Well, that stuff lasts forever. It's a drug company ploy to get you to buy more drugs. Yes. They put an expiration date on it. Right, exactly. A lot of them last a long well, time. Well, fortunately for us, iron and kids, it's usually the mom finds them and the pills are all around and they got some in the mouth kind of thing and it's not a secret what has occurred i think the tough ones are like the carbon monoxides where you're just not even attuned to this diagnosis if you don't have it in your head you'll never make it well i think what you have to at that point say clinically the patient isn't right i don't care what the lab test tells me at that point and what the screens tell me at this point in time you clinically have to treat the patient and there's nothing you can do about that lead is sort of a subset but that's a big problem in inner cities that that's a huge problem sniffing no lead poisoning in young children they're still eating the lead paint or the father brings the lead home and that can become serious neurological complications in children i mean everyone's pretty tuned into it taking lead levels on kids and so on but every once in a while yeah, a kid comes in seizing and no one can figure out what's going on and they take a flat plate and there's this big chunks of lead all throughout his stomach that he's ingested from around the house getting less and less but the yuppies who do their own refurbishing their houses a lot of those places have lead paint in them still so chronic headaches chronic abdominal pain chronic anemia in a child they look like a star someday picking up a lead poisoning case Although we may be drifting because this is about risk management, but there's some good clinical stuff here to pick up too. What about aspirin? People still take aspirin? People still take aspirin. Older people think it's a panacea. They're chronic aspirin poisoning in little old ladies, and that looks like the flu. They're a little bit febrile, maybe tachycardia, and maybe a little bit goofy, and you think they've got some sort of viral syndrome, and you meet them to the hospital, and they get better in two days, and you're all happy. And they go back and come back a month later with the same thing. They have chronic aspirin poisoning. Acute salicylate poisoning can be fatal. And again, if you get the history, it's pretty easy that you know what to do because we know how to treat these patients. It's those that come in with an acidosis that you can't figure out. And you didn't, you didn't send a salicylate level or with a high anion gap. Or a lot of gastroenteritis. Or just multi-system failure. Severe aspirin causes ARDS and renal failure and seizures and encephalopathy. And if you take sustained-released aspirin, you might not pick it up on your first There are about somewhere between four and 5,000 lawsuits a year, all 50 states put together against emergency physicians, somewhere in that range. I think most of those are in Philadelphia. A lot of them. About 90%. I think your hospital is in particular. I personally had about 100 of them. The bottom line of this is I've never seen an emergency doc sued on an aspirin poisoning. It may be out there someplace, but again, as a risk management tape, it's got to be a relatively small All right, well, let's problem. move on to another drug then. Acetaminophen? People getting sued for acetaminophen? They are, particularly Johnson & Johnson or McNeil who makes it because there's this probably a myth out there that therapeutic doses of Tylenol can cause liver failure. Public, I don't think, believes that Tylenol can hurt you, so they take it sort of as a gesture and so on. But liver failure from acetaminophen is not uncommon. It's a leading cause of liver transplant still in this country. 
and there is an antidote for it. So that's one you don't want to miss. Usually straightforward, but not always. I think most doctors are in the reflex habit of if it's an overdose and I'm going to get some labs or so on, they just routinely send an acetaminophen level, which is okay. The yield is low, but acetaminophen, I've seen at least a dozen cases of hepatic failure who died from acetaminophen poisoning. We talked at the beginning of the tape about the routine measuring of it. Some people would think that's not an unreasonable thing to do, even though in the vast majority of cases, the patients are truthful about what they ingested. And you pick up acetaminophen is going to be relatively uncommon, but you're right. It's treatable and uh, there's no initial symptoms and people are going to say, well, why didn't you do it, doctor? I guess the question on treating is what to do if they have a small level in their body and it's been multiple ingestions. They'll tell you I've taken 20 Tylenol a day for the last six days for my toothache. Well, that's a toxic level and most people are going to get some hepatotoxicity from that. So you measure the level and it's 30 or 40 and If those patients have an elevated liver enzyme, they need to be admitted and treated, even though they can't fit the nomogram because they're not the one-time single overdose. Yeah, that wasn't intended for this chronic overdoses or time-released products at all. That thing is 30 years old at least. Yeah, the problem with some of those is exactly how they're going to be treated. I mean, the N-acetylcysteine, that sort of thing, how long to give it. I don't think we have as clear a handle on that as we do, because most of the experimental work is done with one-time, big dose, following the curves, that sort of thing. I think it's a much more uh, delicate question. But the key here is to make the diagnosis so that you don't get sued. Uh, Back on children, I have seen a number of cases where the adult strength suppositories were given to children, and they had this sort of parent-induced, again, some of these pharmacy-era things that they were given adult strength suppositories for a number of days, and they've had some liver necrosis from it. Kids actually do very well with acetaminophen. They do much better than adults do. Their liver, their P450s, is different than ours. they got better hepatocytes. Heroin, or drugs where situations where you can make them clinically better and then they want to go home, or, yeah, well, let's do heroin first. I think we've all been through this phase, certainly early on in my career, when I was much more into the good riddance to bad trash kind of view of this thing, a heroin overdose would come in, we'd give him his Narcan, he'd sort of wake up, look around, get very belligerent, and nobody wanted to fight with him or strap him down at that moment. What I learned early on was before I gave the Narcan, put the restraints on. Because once you've given it and he wakes up, now what you've got is you've got a fight on your hands. And the last thing I ever want to be involved in is a fair fight. Well, they're probably in withdrawal, a lot of those patients. And they want to get out of there and shoot up again. The right way to do it is to titrate small amounts. But we don't have that luxury sometimes. Enough to wake them up, but not to put them in withdrawal. But the paramedics shoot in two milligrams of Narcan can and boom they wake right up and then withdrawal and they don't want to stick around they feel terrible and the question is what do you do there's a, an asap website about litigation issues have you seen that mm-hmm. they have a couple of cases in there which they sort of bring up as what you should do and then one of them is a heroin overdose that how long should you watch a heroin overdose after they've been awakened with narcan and they say 90 minutes is enough I disagree with trying to make a time. I think it's all on the circumstance and so on. But Narcan only lasts about an hour. Even in large doses, doesn't last very long. But we're all faced with that patient who overdoses, not just a Narcan. What about a benzo or a alcohol who <laughs> wants to leave? And they seem to be okay, but, you know, you're afraid. They don't want you to call their wife to come get them, which is probably HIPAA violation anyway, but you... Those ones we often overlook. Those are problematic. How long do you keep them? What are their rights to go if they want to? My experience with courts and with juries is, did that doctor act in a way that I'd want him to act if it was my brother or sister? 
if you are aggressive about protecting the patient, i.e. you restrain them, watch them, make sure that they're clear of the drug, most people are going to forgive you a little bit of aggressiveness. If that patient wakes up and walks out, and now 30 minutes later is in coma again, or they're driving, and they drop back off, and kill somebody else, you know what? I think that's a very difficult position to defend. Well, we're also talking about malpractice here. If you restrain somebody because you believe in your heart that it's it's the right thing to do because they have the potential of hurting themselves or others, where's the malpractice? What harms have been done? People have raised that question. They always get an attorney who wants to frighten a few thousand dollars out of you. Well, they held him down. They did this. They did assault and battery. Assault yeah, and that's, battery that's questions. Criminal. Isn't that criminal? It's not civil, is it? Well, assault and battery carries with it both a civil and a criminal action because the criminal action would be for the assault and the battery. But then there's the emotional strain that went with that. By the way, assault and battery is the state acting against the doctor. The civil action is the individual coming back against the doctor. I guess that's the O.J. thing. (laughs) O.J. got tried for murder and let off. And let off. And then the family sued him. Rules of evidence were different, et cetera, et cetera. And they, well, the they, venue was different as well. As they, they won, so that basically it was the civil version and the criminal version of the same crime. In any case... We ought to ferret this out just a little bit further, because I tell our residents, what would you rather be trying to defend? Tying somebody down who you document and you make your best efforts to sweet-talk them, tying them down, keeping them from leaving, or letting them go and having a run into a school bus? You know, What would you rather defend? They all say this, my right to leave and questions how long do you have to watch a lot of these patients i've had them elope can you tie everybody our policy used to be to tie everyone down had a drug overdose until we're ready to let them go and then the state came in and dinged this for you didn't talk to them nice read them a story show them the wine list all that other stuff you're supposed to do before you go to restraints it's a very difficult thing now we have to take our clerk and have them sit one-on-one in the room Mm -hmm. on every patient and we can't even tie them down this is us moving in the wrong direction this is pinhead liberals taking over the country. Right. And I've been involved in cases where patients have left supposedly prematurely from the emergency room and have something bad happen to them or somebody else. Yeah, tell us about the case and, that you and talked about. You know, the very famous, very rich hospital in the suburbs of Philadelphia had a stockbroker who drove his new BMW in there because he thought he got a little reaction to some wine he was drinking. And they gave him a little shot of Benadryl. And he said, oh, thanks a lot. I feel better now. I want to go. And, and it was, again, this sort of, I didn't think it was that bad. They never measured his alcohol level. It combination of Benadryl and alcohol. That sounds like a soporif to me. Yeah, well, that's a 5 by 7 poster from Kinko's in the courtroom, that one, because yeah, they yeah. put that on the alcohol and Benadryl. You don't drive. You don't, don't have, yeah. If he told me he was driving a bulldozer home, maybe they would have kept him there. But, uh, <laughs> but this guy was allowed to leave and came back a half an hour dead with a blood alcohol level from the corner of over 300. From a motor vehicle accident? From a motor vehicle accident. He ran off his road at going like 90 miles an hour. It's uh, lucky he didn't hit the hemophilia camp bus right. at the same time. The diabetic you know, camp. This comes up all the time, and I think intoxicated patients and allowing intoxicated patients to leave is universal in emergency medicine, Rick, and I think these principles need to be stated loud and We clear. have talked about this on previous tapes. There is such a thing as a duty 
to unknown but predictable third party. When you allow someone to leave who's been given, for example, a shot of morphine, somebody who is intoxicated, somebody who has the potential of suffering from your therapy, and now you give them a 4,000-pound car to drive and they hit somebody, you know what? That is a duty to a third party. And I think that we need to respect that. And that's why when in doubt, restraint is one of my early mentors said, always be sued for malfeasance and not nonfeasance. Because people don't understand when a doctor doesn't act. They understand when you take an action that may be controversial. What they don't understand is when you lay back and do nothing on a case like this. Have you noticed the phenomenon where as you become intoxicated, you become more and more knowledgeable in the law? Have you, <laughs> yeah. have well, you the, seen that? The bipolar patients really know the law about restraints because they right. threaten you all the time when they take an overdose or do something that uh, could be dangerous the, to them. The great line is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sue you. What's went, your name? Yeah, What's your it, name? Yeah, oh, nurses I, put the tape over their badge so they can't tell who they are. And I tell the residents to scribble so they can't figure out yeah. who they are on the chart. Well, what I always say is, oh, yeah, What's your lawyer's name? If he comes up with a name, I say, listen, we know each other. We play golf twice a week. He'll never take the case. Shut up. And in the morning, they all say the same thing. Was I bad again last night, Dr. (laughs) Henry? And I say, yes, Ralph, you were. He says, okay, I'll see you next weekend. And you know what? They will see us next weekend. And the reason they'll see us is because we thought enough to protect them correctly. I'll tell you, our biggest problem is finding a reasonable person to release either drug or alcohol patients to. Because you call up the families... And they say, that bastard, I'm not picking him up. I don't know anybody who's going to pick him up. So you know what? We're stuck with him at that moment in time. Well, that's the, the frequent flyer is always a problem because you get nonchalant in their treatment, first of all, right. because they've always been there drunk, and maybe this time they have the subdural, and nobody wants to come pick them up, and they bug the heck out of everybody in the ER. They're obnoxious, and they know how to push your buttons, and that comes out to the good riddance policy. Let's get him out of here because he's only drunk again. I had this case about four weeks ago of a teenager who was from out of state, and he wouldn't give us the name of his parents. We had no one even to call for him, and he was essentially found unconscious in a car for from probably Xanax and a bunch of other things. And we have him there for about two or three hours, and he wanted to go. And he said, you can't keep me here. I know my rights. And it became a huge issue. I didn't let him go, but I, go. Yeah, a lot of doctors would have just said, okay, you look okay to me. You can go out. But this guy was unconscious in a car three hours earlier. I don't think he could have gone. No. Nobody would admit him to the hospital. The psych said, well, you know, he said he was doing drugs. That's not a psychiatric problem. You, know, you can't maintain it. It's called 302 in Pennsylvania. You cannot unwillfully restrain someone in a psychiatric hole because they're doing drugs. No, you can't the, do that. The state has gone in the wrong direction. The, the Sorry state is about berserk. That. The state is berserk. As long as we, the ultimate lie is the one you tell to yourself. When you tell yourself, you know, the state's probably got this figured out. The other thing is, if something goes wrong, those rats will desert the ship. And there's something you should have done. I'm sure there was some subtle thing that they say, well, you would have picked up this or that if you'd only kept them. You know, in this case, doctor, you should have suspended their civil liberties and protected the patient. And if you do send them home, I think you have to create the go-home chart, the right. chart that basically says the patient has no ataxia, speech is clear and appropriate, those kinds of things. They so can do backflips on the beam. They could do uh, the New York Times crossword puzzle. puzzle. Exactly. And it's one of the reasons, and we mentioned this before, not to measure the blood alcohol when they first come in, when they're obviously intoxicated. It's not a diagnostic dilemma. You're drunk. You smell drunk. You are drunk. You act drunk kind of thing. 
the reason not to measure that is because people will say, well, based on the time curves, this person's blood alcohol was this when they left, and therefore we think he was compromised. So I think you don't want to give any unnecessary evidence to your accusers. Yeah, Yeah. I've seen it go both ways, from doing the level and then being stuck into some sort of clearance issue that you have to keep in there for a certain amount of time. And I've seen it not checking it. And this case we talked about earlier, where the guy was obviously, you know, extremely high alcohol level, didn't appear intoxicated, was very tall. You can get amazingly tall. If you haven't seen somebody coming in looking perfectly normal, blood alcohol over 400, you just haven't worked enough shifts. There are two aspects of restraint, which always come back to bite the emergency doc. Number one, you've clearly documented why you did it those history and physical findings which make it appropriate and then you follow your own hospital's policy on restraint you do check them you do make sure that the limbs you've tied down are doing well you've made sure that their needs are met that they can pee they can be given water all these sorts of things and at intervals you've checked to see if it's now time to release them from restraint. I mean, we're not in the hold, treat, and torture business. By the same token, I use the highways like everybody else. I don't want you releasing them if they constitute a clear and present danger to me or my family at that moment in time. I think you're right. If they are, in fact, okay to leave, they're okay to leave. But you have to, A, look for it, and B, document that that's the The onus is upon you to say that this person is now clear and will be able to function. All right, well, let's go over this again because we did this a number of months ago, but it is a logical extension of what we're talking about. So this person who was intoxicated, he's no longer in the department. He left eloped kind of thing. He eloped. What, what kind of reasonable things can we do to somebody who said, geez, he was drunk, now he's eloped. I don't know whether he drove here or not. What could be expected of an emergency physician? The most reasonable thing you can have is the response that you would have if it was somebody that was in your family. Number one, we looked around. We checked the parking lot. We looked in the bathrooms. We checked where people go to smoke. We've made a reasonable search of the premises to where they are. Secondly, most people come in and they have a contact phone number. We've contacted that phone number. We called hospital security to look around. If they're driving, we've called the police and said, we have a potential patient who constitutes a danger. Why don't you see if you can find him? Yeah, pretty hard for them to find in Philadelphia somebody who's driving erratically. Although it's the process, (laughs) and they might still try to nail you because you wouldn't supervise this person adequately. Well, you know, there is a reasonable case, and I have one of those, where the nurses had gone to the doctor twice and said, this guy's a wacko, and we need to put him in restraints. Now, he went through the department smacking people. This was the old days. He had a glass IV bottle, broke it over a kid's head, and by the way, hurt two of the nurses to the point where they couldn't go back to work. And the lawsuit said he knew or should have known by virtue of what the nurses had told him, that he needed to be better supervised, better managed, and that he had reasonable belief that he constituted a danger to other people. I think that... That's that's a hard one. That's a hard one. That's a, well, yeah, that's a gray area sometimes, but again, that comes down to what would you rather try to defend? Yeah. Tying him down or letting him hit the nurse with the IV bottle? I have a nurse I'd like him to hit for me, if you could find his name. (laughs) He doesn't do contract work. He doesn't doesn't do He's not a traveling nurse? He's not a traveling traveling patient. Bad traveling patient. (laughs) The itinerant patient, right. All right, that was the 
elope patient. We do have the people who said, I'm leaving, Doc. They're not eloping. They're just basically saying, I'm leaving. And I basically think that you have to kind of be rather aggressive with them if you don't think that it is safe for them to go. Take their clothes. Most people won't go naked. Even drunks won't go naked. In California, though, you can get away with anything. Uh, In Michigan, you can't. It's cold this time of year. And I do think that you have an obligation to say, listen, if you go out, I'm going to call the cops because you can't be driving your car. There's a new sort of philosophy floating around in hospitals, particularly with their security people. We can't touch anybody. I don't know what these people do anymore. You mean the hospital security? Hospital security. They give directions. Yeah. And I love it when you're in a tough city where police show up who know how to handle difficult patients. They don't screw around. I like the city police showing up. <laughs> they put them on the cot, and we strap them down. And you know what? The cops usually say something polite like, we'll be back in a few hours. Be nice to these people. And they're good. I like the city police who are used to dealing with difficult patients because that's what we have to come up with. As personalities, emergency docs and cops have a lot in common because we deal with a lot of the very same people. People that they know on a first-name basis, we know on a first-name basis. And some of you guys even work nights and weekends, too, like the cops. Oh, my God. That's illegal to work nights and weekends if you're over 60 in Philadelphia. That's my interpretation of the law, anyway. Is it really? Even if you're an emergency doc? Well, if you're me, you don't work nights or weekends. <laughs> well, I understand. You're sort of a gentleman doctor at this yes, point. Sir. Yes. Jim, we're wrapping up the business about toxicology and the medical legal risk. One area that we haven't covered is this routine drawing of tox panels in the setting of a trauma case. Now, if you've read any of the literature on this, there's absolutely no value to do that because of the medical aspects of these cases. Well, by the way, there's no value in anything you draw on those trauma cases. When's the last time in a 16-year-old boy you ever found an abnormal potassium or an abnormal sodium that you're going to treat in a trauma case? I've just never seen anything come back from the lab that did anything for the patient. But here is the toxicology panel being drawn, and are there medical legal consequences associated with that? It was a knee-jerk test as part of the protocol, et cetera, et cetera. Now what? Well, in Pennsylvania, anyway, a urine screen, which is a positive or negative, not quantified, often for metabolites, really has no legal weight. It can't be used in court as evidence of intoxication because you could have taken the cocaine two days earlier and you'll still have it in your system. My most common call, by the way, from docs is that uh, he said he wasn't using cocaine more than, but it's in his blood or it's in his urine. You know, it's paused for two or three days after just snorting one line. So it sticks around for quite a while. But that's a sort of a passive aggressive on the doctor's part. I'm going to find out this guy's been doing drugs, but maybe if he gets worse, I got to blame it on the drugs. I think that's sort of a subliminal message I seem to get. Well, no, I see it as this is a protocol. Don't they do this in ATLS? Not that I ever took ATLS, but isn't that part of the ATLS protocol is you get electrolytes? Along with the CAT scan from the head to the little yeah, toe? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that goes along with fingers and tubes in all orifices. It's so, just part of the protocol, right. right? I think it's clear that there's no legal or litigation issue of drawing a screen of the urine for drugs in any trauma case because it doesn't say anything. The blood alcohol, which is commonly drawn in trauma cases, does have validity, at least in Pennsylvania, without going through the police chain of custody. If it goes through the hospital laboratory, it's always considered usable evidence for signs of intoxication because you can quantify it, and there are parameters for intoxication with alcohol. There's no parameters for a benzodiazepine level, even in your blood, if you could get it. There's none for a morphine level in your blood or anything like that. By the way, I think that a point that Jim was getting at is that let's say we draw a level and the cocaine is positive. It's not going to be used as the reason why he was in his auto accident, but in his medical file is now the fact that he's positive for cocaine. 
the implications of that being in the folder. Now, most places, most hiring places, you cannot go back into an applicant's record. HIPAA protects that sort of thing, and the fact that you five years ago had history of drug abuse or a positive drug test is usually not available to an employer who's looking at someone getting a job. But let's say for some reason that came out. I've never seen the case where the emergency physician's ordering of a drug test would then come back to bite him that you got a test on me and now I can't get a job. But that's always a thought that has to be in your head at some point in time. What are the -the down-the-road implications of obtaining Uh, Again, asking a question that you may not want to know the answer to. Yeah, we don't ask permission to do drug screens on patients, and there are some issues that that should be given in quorum consent that we're doing that test because of just those issues that Greg mentioned. Yeah, but obviously if someone comes in from an auto accident in the heat of what's going on, and let's say they've got altered mental status, and you want to know from a medic standpoint, what else may be happening to this patient? You do the CAT scan, that's normal. He's still not right. Now, that problem resolved, his head injury has gone away, he's out, and three years later, he's getting a job. Will that come back to bite him? My understanding is with the hiring practices, the EOC guidelines, you cannot ask and you cannot go back and get earlier medical records on a patient. I don't even think you can ask him what their age is. You can't ask them if they're married. Uh, uh, your sexual preferences. You can't ask him anything in a job interview. Well, that's right. Well, you can say, if you were buying a kitchen table to put your family down, how many chairs would you get again? <laughs> so I guess the bottom line here is that there's really no benefit nor harm of drawing these, at least from a legal issue, these urine drug screens in as a routine or even as a diagnostic. Cocaine chest pain is a, so common in our hospital that, that we do a drug screen on any young person with chest pain who has has cocaine possibility with its normal flora in Philadelphia, so we come up very commonly no. positive. I don't think cocaine causes MI anywhere near. The, it causes chest pain, but it's probably not coming. I think from they're the heart. using in the water system in Philadelphia instead of fluoride. They're using cocaine. Are they just well, when the cops come, they flush all the crack down the toilet. You see, and then yes. the neighbors they've tapped into the sewer line because they know the drug dealer. Every time he gets raided, they can just take it out and yeah, that, they strain that, that, it. Well, I think we've beaten the toxicology topic to death pretty much. But there is a couple of things I think that are in some way related. I think that have substantial medical legal consequence. And it relates to writing prescriptions for people, your friends, family, a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing, and the medical legal risk associated with doing that. Jim, you mentioned something about a case where they prescribed some SSRIs. Right. This was a physician who was asked by a family member to write for Zoloft for their husband who was with them in the emergency room for some sort of visit. He was feeling good. And then the doc wrote a prescription for Zoloft. Like, that sounds crazy to me, but he did. And then he actually wrote for, I think, three refills. And the fellow gets the prescription filled and six weeks later kills himself, a suicide attempt. And we all know about this SSRI causing depressed people now to have suicide thoughts and so on. And they sued the doctor. And he had prescribed drugs out of his field. He hadn't examined the patient. He didn't get psychiatric follow-up for them, and his malpractice insurance didn't cover him because it wasn't his patient. Absolutely. If I, as a head of an insurance company, let me just say this, if we had no record on that patient, nothing to defend us, he has not paid the malpractice premium on the visit, 
there is no way that that insurance company should cover him any way, shape, or form. He did not follow the usual and customary rules here. The hospital's at risk. He's at risk. He's put the entire situation at risk. You know what? This just smacks of a lack of judgment on this doctor's part. Well, that might have been an extreme example, but we all know about nurses who come up to us and say, I've got this cough. I've tried everything. Can you give me some Zithromax or something like that? Or my kid has an earache. Can you give me some amoxicillin? Yeah, but you know what you should say to that nurse? Look, they don't let me write for medications unless I've seen a patient. Go ahead and get registered. We'll move you right to the top of the line, and I'll see you. But help me out. I need to have a chart to write on because no chart then there's no coverage for you or me if something goes wrong. And just be honest about it. They all want you to jump in as if no harm, no problem. That would be like saying to the surgeon, you know, well, we're here. And, you know, we're here in the operating room. Why don't you take my appendix out? You think that's going to happen? I mean, why should we be any different than any other doctor? And I think that, unfortunately, we live in America in 2008. It's a litigious society. You know what? Do it right. And don't ever think that nurses will not sue doctors. I can give you the cases. Sometimes more likely to because they know all about the issues. That worst time is to have a patient at a bad outcome who has a nurse as a relative. Absolutely. And they haven't seen him in six years, but they hear moms have been in the hospital and had a bad outcome. you got to look into that. Here's another gray area. The patient doesn't have a doctor doesn't have insurance, comes to the emergency room, maybe, say, for a psychiatric problem. And he says, I've been on Seroquel and Zoloft and, and Xanax for the last three or four years, and I don't have a doctor. Would you refill my prescription for me? You've now seen the patient. You've examined them. You have a medical record of it. And they want you to f- refill their prescriptions that will now be an ongoing chronic drug that maybe is a little bit out of your field. Well, I think that we do this with several drugs. I mean, I occasionally get that person who says, I've run out of my antihypertensive medicine. I've run out of my anti-seizure medicine. Right on my Percocet, my my Dilaudid, and my MS Contin. Well, what I might do is give them enough medication until they see Dr. X, Y, or Z. I've even called up psychiatrists and said, this person's coming. You're on call. They will get enough medication until they get into your office, and that's it. Because I think there's a double-edged sword here. If somebody's been chronically on these medications and you don't help them out a little bit and you think it's reasonable, they also could have a reaction and go down and sure, they're so and depressed, become depressed. They, they committed suicide they committed because suicide. you wouldn't give them their antidepressants. Exactly. Boy, but, that's a bind, isn't but, it? But I don't want to make it an open-ended commitment. I see these people come in and say, well, you know, I'm on Dilantin and I've got seizures and I haven't seen the doctor and I'd like about another year of Dilantin. No, the answer is no. You're not getting a year of anything. I understand our function as a bridge. But and particularly when I get more and more out of my field, when there's complex interactions on psych drugs, I don't want to be there as if I was giving out long-term therapy because I'm not. And that's inappropriate, I think. But you can actually envision a person traveling through town or somebody bringing in their son who's an adolescent who had been on some SSRI. They lost a prescription. The dog ate it or something like that. You know, this country has a problem with junky dogs. They only eat prescriptions. <laughs> hey, paper-eating dogs. They, do, paper they love dogs, homework. homework. But they, well, they, they love only homework. eat prescriptions for things like 
Percodan, Vicodan, Adderall. Adderall. But you won't think anything about it's an antidepressant. It's not one of these other things that, you know, the drugs of abuse that you're talking about. And so it would seem reasonable. Doc, can you help me out here? I'm, I'm, uh, you, you danger, need... Will Robinson. Danger. Well, just understand the feds have now put black box warnings around the antidepressants, several of the antidepressants, because of increased risk of suicide. This whole area is a lot more murky than it used to be. Our general practitioners have stopped writing. They used to take care of all the depressed and sort of, you know, just can't get together people that they see as general practitioners, give them the Zoloft or the Paxil or something. They stopped doing it because of that issue. They, yep. they have to have specific follow-up care within the first two weeks. They have to be seen again. They just that, that was the point I was making. I didn't pick that drug class at random. Primary care doctors are very attuned now to the risks associated with antidepressants. In fact, there's this whole debate in the literature about whether antidepressants truly work or not at all. But the fact is that there is this association of increased risk of suicide. They're attuned to it, but we're not. And you could see how you could easily trip into this kind of box where, in fact, you've broken all the rules. You don't know anything about the drug that you're prescribing, but you hear about it, but you don't specifically know about it. You're not aware of this issue about this increase in suicidality, and you're just stepping into this quagmire because you're not following any of the rules in terms of follow-up, warning of these patients. All of these patients need to be advised at this. If you're having any kinds of these thoughts, we need to know. You've not told them anything like that. General psychiatrists these days are not even dealing with a lot of these multi-drug questions. They have psychiatrists who've actually specialized in adolescence with depression because of all of the complex issues of multiple drug therapy and all of these side effects. A lot of people who do adults will not do adolescence and adjust their drugs because this whole area has become murky. Although there is a big move to have primary care doctors deal with depression and anxiety because it is so rampant. Oh, yeah, they're all asked to screen for it now. Yeah. And, uh, you know what? I don't think there's necessarily more depression now than there ever was. I think we've now called it a different name. But because somebody is now unhappy doesn't mean that they have true depression. It's just like we're way over medicating kids in our school system. Because a boy is rambunctious, does that mean that he's ADHD, that you have to drug them? I think there's a move to instead of use some behavioral modification or whatever our teachers used to do, hey, Jimmy, sit down and be quiet. We've now decided we have to make him a zombie. I am just not a believer that all happiness and all problems of life are solved with something that comes out of a pill bottle. Although for emergency physicians, I think the fallback is you really got to be careful prescribing things that are not in your routine armamentarium because there are issues that you may not be aware of. As an example, we are going to be using more and more rifampin in the treatment of this MRSA. That's a drug we never, ever, never, ever gave. We don't know anything about it. It is the only drug where, in fact, there's definite proof that it will decrease the effect of birth control pills when you give it. If you do not tell the patients about this risk, the necessity for barrier contraception, there was a successful lawsuit against the dentist who prescribed this stuff. Why? I don't know. For unlawful... What, what do they call this the, thing? The, the what? Birth, the, what? Uh, this woman... The, wrongful life. Yeah, wrongful life. You know, and, actually, and, most and states won. will not let you sue for wrongful life. There's another technicality in there. I don't know why a dentist is writing for rifampin. But the anyway, point is, we that will, has probably got the lady pregnant when she was under nitrous, and that's his way of getting out. <laughs> that could be, yes. The fact is, we need to be aware of atypical dangers associated with the drugs that we may be prescribing or never prescribe, and somebody's asking us. I think that in each specialty, there's a group of drugs which you have absolute command of. 
we have things like atropine, epinephrine, the kinds of stuff that we give every day, vancomycin, that we're pretty hip on what to do and how much to give and all that sort of thing. And then all those other 5,000 drugs in the PDR, you know what? I don't know much about those, and there has to be a pretty damn good reason that I'm writing for it out of the emergency department. And I just haven't done certain things in years. Sure, when I was an intern, I would write for mop therapy, cop therapy with cancer patients, that sort of thing. You know what? I wouldn't do that again. That's hubris. That's That's true, but we're talking about outpatient drugs on the way through town. Can you help me out, Doc? Yeah, well. My, My neighbor was going to fly to Europe. He wanted me to give him a couple of Xanax. I don't even have any Xanax, but he wanted me to either write a prescription or give him some. I said, no, he hadn't talked to me in six months. By the way, the medical legal implications of you writing for your family, any drug that requires a DEA number are huge. It is absolutely against the canons these days for you to be prescribing those drugs which are psychoactive for your family members. So if you're writing pain medicines for your daughter or your brother or somebody in the neighborhood, you're in deep trouble. And the feds, the narcotics people do investigate for this, and they should. Well, on that uplifting note, Gregory, I think we're going to terminate this issue. Of risk management monthly. Jim, I want to tell you how much I appreciate you're taking the time to do this. I think you've added a perspective that we never would have had, I can tell you that. Yep, it was a real treat to have a real expert in toxicology with us. And if we have any toxicology questions come up or sent in by the listenership, I hope you're willing to take those and we could do a phone interview with you. For the usual, as long for, as during for, the weekday and not at night or weekends. <laughs> and and at the, the appropriate rate. And for the usual fee. Yes, and now he's become a plastic surgeon. All right. So what a great city this month. Jim Roberts really is a legend, a very old man, but a very legendary man. Let's go over some of the issues that came up in this tape. Let's emphasize them. Let's be clear about what the boys said. First of all, what they talked about is toxicology. And they talked a lot about some clinical things. And the key things initially was that in tox, less is more. The less you do, the better in so many patients. That charcoal works, but be careful with it. That lavage can work, but only under very specific circumstances. It's bad. Lavage is bad. It results in aspiration. You can kill people with it. So you really only want to use it when you've got somebody with a very bad intoxication that's occurred very recently. That was my take-home message. Then they talked about tox panels. And Jim gave a very, very nice review of the fact that there's a lot of stuff on tox panels that don't show up that they're not useful for a whole bunch of things, things like Percocet and Clonopin and and Fentanyl and Methadone. These kinds of things don't even show up on your tox panel, so uh, they're worthless in a clinical setting in a lot of circumstances. But they all noted, and this was interesting, that although that they think the routine use of tox panels is stupid, they still do them because they have to interact with other people who think that they're useful, kind of like the CBC. You may agree that the CBC is useless in the vast majority of patients with pneumonia, but you're going to get it. The same with tox panels. Acetaminophen, different story. Acetaminophen is a toxidrome which is basically silent, and yet it can kill you. And so, again, they all agree, you'll do a lot of acetaminophen levels in patients where you suspect that there's an intoxication. You'll do that knowing that there are not going to be very many positives, but a positive may actually change your management. And so that's a reasonable thing. They also talked about if you're a little bit over your head with a tox case, do not hesitate. Do not hesitate to get a tox expert on the phone. You're going to have to decide. Most of the time you don't need help, but remember that there are cases when things went badly, usually in sick patients, when you didn't call a tox center, then you got in trouble because they said you should have consulted. That seems reasonable. 
Then they talked about a series of medical cases that look like just medical cases, but are tox cases. So think, as Greg said, in any severe headache patient, think bleed, think carbon monoxide, think infection. And obviously the carbon monoxide triggers are there's more than one person or you've got a good story and you realize there's something else going on here. And the classic one is the hibachi or the person off the back of the houseboat. Then they talked a lot about tox in kids. The kid that's acting weird, have a differential diagnosis. So a little kid, you know, between so what, a few months to a few years old, acting weird. Think cocaine, think alcohol, think digoxin, think iron, think these things that can really hurt these kids and, you know, safe-proof your house. If a kid gets into one of these things and gets sick from it, then depending on which state you are, and most states have this, you need to think about calling uh, Child Protective Services to report it doesn't mean the kid's going to be taken away, but something has to be done. That's the law, and you are at that point an agent of the law. Then they talked about aspirin. That acute aspirin toxicity is usually pretty easy to diagnose. The person's acidotic, they're sick, they've got a big anion gap, but the one that sneaks up on you is the chronic aspirin toxicity. The elderly patient that's taken aspirin every day and then their renal function goes bad, or they're just taking a little bit more because the pain is worse. Think in that flu-like syndrome in an elderly patient, could this be aspirin toxicity then they talked about ethanol levels and they said with ethanol levels again that vast majority of the time this doesn't help you but in some states it actually can be used legally in other states it can't so the level that you get in your hospital may be used in a court of law to say this person really was intoxicated but in general ethanol levels don't help you very much but usually they don't hurt you very much if you know what you're doing. Then the eloped, intoxicated patient, what should you do? They gave a sort of a point plan. Somebody comes in, they're a little intoxicated, they elope, you can't find them, what do you do? Here's what you do. You call the family, you look around the hospital, you call the contact number, you call security, and if they're driving or if you're really concerned about them, you call the police. This shows some due diligence. Obviously, the best thing is don't let them leave. What about the patient that says, I'm leaving, that's intoxicated? Well, in this case, take their clothes, uh, call the cops, call security. If you need to hold them, and this is the pearl, a real pearl, it's better to be sued for malfeasance than for nonfeasance. It's better to have done something that's controversial, holding somebody against their will, than it is to do nothing and have them go out and have something bad happen. Generally, you're in much better legal and moral ethical place to do too much, to look after this person, to make sure they don't hurt themselves or others. They then went on and talked about routine toxin trauma cases again, saying, look, we all know that this is a waste of time, and yet we are still probably going to do this. And that's when we talked about it's not really going to help you medically or legally. It's not going to hurt you medically or legally in most cases. And then finally, they talked about prescribing for people you haven't seen. Don't do it. It's very dangerous, except under specific circumstances. For example, there is some legislation in some states that says you can prescribe uh, STD therapy for the unseen partner of patients. That may be okay, but just be very careful. Know that if something goes bad, you could get in trouble. And Greg brought up the very important point. If you haven't generated a chart, if the insurance company hasn't been paid their malpractice premium on that person, then you may have to pay for any malpractice yourself. And that should scare the hell out of you. Obviously, you've got friends, family that ask you for help, and you're going to have to decide what to do. None of us are going to be this wiener that says, I can never, ever, ever do anything for people, never prescribe anything. But do it with great fear and loathing, particularly for people at work, particularly for nurses that ask you for stuff at work. You have to say, look, this is very dangerous for me. 
let's not go there. I'll look after you. I'll help you. I won't generate a bill, something. Come up with a plan, but just be very afraid. So, ladies and gentlemen, that was Risk Management Monthly for the month of May 2008. And I think it was really clinically useful. So we thank Jim Roberts, Rick Bucata, and Greg Henry for a really good Risk Management Monthly. Thank you, boys. Let's close up with Wine of the Month. We've had some excellent suggestions, by the way, from various people calling in, and I've been told that many are coming. I've got one now for you. We have been concentrating on U.S. wines the last few months. We're going to go back to Europe, to France, and there is a white wine, a magnificent white wine called Montagnier. And Montagnier is is got to be one of the great, very light, very sparkling, terrific white wines. You can get this from various wine distributors. We will have in the paperwork that goes with this the exact way you order it. And I'll tell you right now that once you've tasted it, you will say magnifique. You can get this at somewhere in the neighborhood between 16 and $18 a bottle. At that price, it is a absolute wine bargain. So, Rick, there you go. There's Wine of the Month. Thanks, Greg. And we'll sign off now. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll talk with you next month. Bye-bye. <laughs>